Welcome to Awake the Future. I'm Adam Weiss. It's been almost two weeks since I first read Edgar's last letter, where he said some powerful people might try to stop me. It turns out he was right, and a lot has happened since my last episode. Honestly, I don't think I've really processed it all. But to say the least, everything is going to be different moving forward. I suppose I'll start at the beginning and tell you the story of the events as they unfolded. As I mentioned in the last episode, I was a little spooked by Edgar's comments suggesting I might be in danger. I didn't know what kind of threat I needed to prepare for or how I should go about trying to protect myself. I decided to just pack a bag with some supplies, clothes, and cash in case I needed to make a quick getaway. I thought about staying in a hotel or going on an extended camping trip, but settled on waiting until something actually happened before I made such a move. I didn't know if I could really do anything to prepare myself if some of the most powerful people in the world wanted to do me harm. I thought maybe they would just hack my podcast and shut it down, but there was a chance of a direct threat as well, and it didn't take long for that to happen. I barely slept the first night after receiving the letter, as all I could think about was someone breaking into my house to kill me. I tried to calm my nerves the following day by spending some extra time in nature, this included an afternoon trail run in the woods near my house. It was a nice day and I was enjoying my time outdoors until I spotted a hiker walking toward me on the trail. I had a weird feeling when I saw this person. As we drew closer, I could see that the hiker was a strikingly beautiful woman. She was dressed in all black, black pants, black shirt, and black boots with her long hair pulled back in a ponytail. I dismissed the weird feeling as my usual response to being in the presence of a beautiful woman, and I slowed my run to a walk as she approached. Hello, I said, smiling, still catching my breath. Hi, do you know how many more miles this trail goes? she asked. As I looked into her blue-green eyes, I found myself struggling to find the words to reply. Those eyes, I thought, they're the same as... But before I could say anything, she pulled out a gun, held it to my head, and said, Start walking. My mind and heart raced as I was escorted at gunpoint through the forest. I was completely at this woman's mercy. I had no weapon unless you count my car keys, and although she was physically smaller than me, I assumed she could handle herself. Even if I could have physically overtaken her, there was still the issue of the gun. I knew my odds were dismal, so I did what she said. Once we got a couple hundred yards off the trail and into a clearing, she told me to stop and turn around. It was a weird feeling to have such an attractive woman holding a gun to my head. She wasn't at all what I thought my potential assassin would look like. As I stood there staring at her with my heart pounding out of my chest, I could see a crack in her emotionless face. She seemed conflicted about what to do next. After about thirty seconds of just looking at each other, she said, tell me about your dream. My dream, I asked. What do you mean? Tell me about the dream you talked about in your last episode, she said. I immediately knew the implications of this. Why would an assassin ask her target about a dream? 
Well, if that dream were about an experience in a past life, and the assassin also had the same dream about an experience in a past life, then we might just have something to talk about. After I finished retelling the story of my dream, my female assassin still seemed undecided about her next move. We stood there in silence until she sat down on a fallen tree and stopped pointing the gun at me. As she sat there staring at the ground, I wasn't sure what to do. On one hand, she might kill me. On the other hand, she was possibly my soulmate. I decided to sit down next to her on the log. Same dream, I asked. Yeah, she said, and then went on to say that her dream was from the perspective of the nurse, Catherine. Everything else was completely identical. What do we do now? I asked. She didn't respond. We just sat there in silence for a few minutes. The longer we waited, the less likely I felt that she was going to kill me. Let's go, she finally said, as she pointed the gun at me again. She walked me out of the forest to where she had parked a black SUV on an abandoned road. She had me stop at the vehicle. I'm sorry about this, she said, as she locked my hands together behind my back with zip ties. She then pulled out a blindfold. Before things went dark, I locked eyes with her for a brief moment. I still felt like my life might hang in the balance, but at the same time, I felt a sense of peace being with her. It was like some kind of deja vu. I felt as if I had been reunited with a loved one whom I had long forgotten. After she placed me blindfolded and bound in the back of the SUV, we drove for a few hours. She then parked the vehicle, removed the blindfold, cut the zip ties, and escorted me into an apartment building with a point of her gun pressed into the small of my back. The apartment had generic accommodations that you might find in a hotel room. My eyes squinted at the setting sun gleaming through the living room windows. After she let me use the bathroom, we sat across from each other at the kitchen table. She didn't say much, and I couldn't tell if she felt the same strange feelings I did. Are you hungry? she asked. Even though I had not eaten anything since breakfast, the threat to my life was effectively suppressing my appetite. I didn't want to offend my assassin, however, so I said, I could eat. She got up and opened the cupboard. Do you like peanut butter and jelly? She asked. It's all I've got. Sure, sounds good, I said. She made us each a sandwich and poured a couple glasses of spring water she had in the fridge. We ate the sandwiches in silence. When I was done, I thanked her. She looked at me apologetically. I still haven't figured out what I'm going to do, she said. I should know more by morning. She then locked me in a small windowless room with a bed. The whole experience was so surreal. I had been abducted by a beautiful assassin who I thought might be my soulmate. It seemed that she was supposed to kill me in the forest and leave me there, but she was having second thoughts. This made me feel hopeful until I considered that maybe she had been instructed to keep me alive and whoever she worked for was now going to try to use my relationship with Edgar to their advantage. Then I realized that the whole thing about sharing the same dream might be a con, a ruse to earn my trust and take advantage of me in some way. If you were going to pull such a stunt, it would make sense to send the most beautiful assassin you could find and have her pretend to connect to Catherine. I knew I couldn't trust her at least not yet. Despite my waning optimism, there was one thing that gave me a tremendous amount of relief. I finally got confirmation that all this wasn't just in my head. The letters from Edgar were real. 
There was a real assassin in the other room to prove it. I wasn't going crazy. I could finally stop doubting every thought that went through my head. I could finally stop doubting my decision to release this podcast. I knew I was on the right path, even though I had no idea where it would lead. The whole predicament was mind-boggling, but I finally could believe it was true. Looking back on the hours I spent locked in that room, I felt so many emotions. I was afraid. I was angry. I was relieved. I was hopeful. There were any number of ways things could play out. There was a chance I might die. There was a chance the assassin would try to pull an elaborate con on me. There was also a chance she was telling the truth. I tried to stay positive. I thought about her eyes and how they were just like Catherine's. If the eyes are the window to the soul, maybe the same blue-green eyes followed Catherine's soul into her reincarnation as my potential assassin. After I exhausted myself thinking about all the ramifications of the day's events, I decided to turn off the ceiling light above me and tried to get some sleep. That night I had another incredibly vivid dream. It was a continuation of the previous dream where I was David, the British soldier in World War II. I was with Catherine in a hotel room, and it felt like many months after our first meeting in the hospital. She was wearing a white dress, and I was wearing my formal military uniform. We had just gotten married. I could feel the intense love and joy David was experiencing in that moment, and it was so incredible to see and feel everything as if it was actually happening to me. Then the emotions changed as Catherine asked me to sit down to talk. She proceeded to tell me that she was a spy for the Germans. She said she was part of a program where they recruited young women working at military hospitals to become romantically involved with wounded British officers to gain access to military intel. She said she thought she was working for British intelligence at first, as her handler had told her she was part of a mission to uncover double agents who were working for the Nazis. She later heard about the truth of the program when some British military officers came to the hospital to warn the staff. I'm not with you because of the program, she told David. I truly love you. I fell in love with you from the first time I saw you. I never tried to steal any secrets from you. I tried to get out of the program as soon as I found out I was working for the Nazis, but they wouldn't let me. I tried again when you proposed to me, but my contact told me I had no choice but to continue if I wanted to keep my life. David was completely blindsided by these revelations. His whole body, my whole body, felt numb. You should have told me sooner, he said. I know, I know, she said. Do you still want to be with me? She asked, sobbing. Till death do us part, David said, and kissed her softly. Inside David's mind, I could feel my thoughts spinning. I knew Catherine's life was at risk. The Germans might kill her if she stopped working for them, and the British government might charge her with treason if she turned herself in. There was no easy way out. We had to run. We left that night and I drove us to the coast. I devised a plan for us to leave the country on a fishing boat, but just before we were about to board, Catherine stopped me. David, we can't just run away, she said. I have to do something about this. I have to try to fix what I have done. We went back to the car and came up with a new plan. The plan was to infiltrate the German spy program she worked for and take out her handler and the other German spies in charge of the program. We thought we could clear her name with the British government by doing this. 
I wanted to do it alone, but in order to demonstrate her allegiance to the British government, Catherine had to be by my side, gun in hand. She wouldn't have let me do it alone anyway. She wanted to clean up the mess she had made. So I drove us back to the city, and after we stopped somewhere to secure weapons, we proceeded to the safe house where Catherine usually met her handler. The plan was to go inside and gather everyone into the same room where they would be questioned and then executed. After that, we would go to the command center at my base and report everything that happened. If all went well, I would just get a slap on the wrist for breaking procedure and Catherine's name would be cleared. It was the middle of the night when we arrived at the house, but we could see through the windows that the lights were still on. I parked the car down the street. Before we got out, I held Catherine's hand and asked her, Are you sure you want to do this? She squeezed my hand and replied, Yes, it's our only choice. We then got out of the car and hurried toward the house. We went in the back door, which was unlocked, and found a group of four men sitting at a table playing cards. We pointed our guns at them and shouted at them to put their hands in the air and go to the other room. We asked them if anyone else was in the house. They said no. Catherine stayed downstairs with the men while I went upstairs to see if anyone else was there. I didn't see anyone in any of the bedrooms, but then someone shot at me from behind a closet door. I felt intense pain as a bullet pierced my abdomen. I fired back at the closet door and a man fell out, dead. I then realized I had heard shots ring out downstairs at the same time. I ran down the stairs and found Catherine leaning against the fireplace with blood pooling from the front of her white wedding dress. The four men we had escorted into the room were all dead. Catherine said she had turned to look upstairs when she heard the shots and one of the men pulled out a gun and shot her. She then shot him and all the rest. We both knew our time together was nearing an end. We were both bleeding out and struggling to stay on our feet. We embraced, our bloodied bodies intertwining as we fell to the floor in front of the fireplace. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Catherine whispered. I love you, I whispered back with the last of my breath as the world slowly faded away. Then I awoke as my present self as the light of the morning rushed into my windowless cell. The door opened and my beautiful assassin was there. Good morning, she said. Do you want some coffee? Sure, I said, and walked out to the kitchen table with her where she poured us each a cup. After just sitting there drinking coffee for a few minutes, the assassin broke the silence by saying, I had the most bizarre dream last night. I looked up at her with attention. So did I, I said. She then grabbed a piece of paper and a pen and told me to write down my dream while she did the same. We wrote in silence and then traded our written accounts with each other and read them quietly to ourselves. Neither of us looked at each other nor spoke until we finished reading the other's account of the dream. As you probably would guess at this point, she had the same dream as me, but from Catherine's perspective. We sat for a moment in stunned silence over our half-empty cups of coffee, not really knowing what to make of the situation. I no longer had any doubts about who this woman was and who I was. My assassin and I are the reincarnated souls of Catherine and David, soulmates reunited again in another lifetime. Even so, it still wasn't clear to me whether or not the assassin felt it necessary to follow through with her mission. Finally, she broke the silence. I'm Adrian, she said. I then reached across the table and gently held her hand. 
Adrian, I said, looking deeply into her eyes, you can trust me. We're in this together now. She squeezed my hand and said, it's not safe here. We need to go. We left the apartment, got in the SUV, and this time I rode in the front passenger seat with my hands and eyes free. As we drove off, Adrian said I needed to follow my initial instincts and get off the grid. Just because she didn't kill me wouldn't stop them from sending someone else to do the job. She said she would get me a new identity and passport and send me to a safe house in another country where I would stay until I heard from her. In the meantime, she would proceed as if she had actually killed me and tell her superiors as much. She knew I needed to continue to release the podcast so this cover would only hold until I released the next episode, this episode. But in the time she had, she planned to infiltrate the organization she worked for and figure out exactly why they wanted me gone. The implications of that decision were not lost on me. Not only would they send someone else to kill me, they would also target her after they found out what she had done. She too would have to disappear and take on another identity. I thanked her and made it clear I understood the sacrifice she was making. During the long drive, she told me about how she ended up in her line of work. She said she joined the CIA after college and worked in the field as an operations officer for about five years. Then one day, she had a meeting with her boss and another man. They told her she had been selected to join a new unit that had been created to protect the country from what they called unique terrorist threats. Before officially joining this unit, she had to undergo an additional year of rigorous training, which she said was more challenging than anything she had ever done in her life. Throughout that year, she operated under the assumption that the unit she was joining was still part of the CIA. However, once she was on board, she found out that the unit had only loose connections to the U.S. government and was more of a private international conglomerate. Many of her colleagues were foreign nationals, and it wasn't easy for her to tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. Because this organization, which she called the corporation, had no ties to any state, it was free to act in any way necessary to complete its missions. And the missions, she said, were unusual. She was assigned to assassinate individuals who had supposedly obtained top-secret military technologies that threatened the world. Many of her targets were individuals who had developed paranormal technologies for manipulating time, energy fields, and consciousness. She told me about one guy who supposedly created a way to slow down the flow of time, and a woman who developed a method for reading the mind of another person located anywhere in the world. As bizarre as some of these things sounded, the evidence suggested that they were real. She knew these technologies had powerful applications, but the individuals she was assigned to take out were usually acting independently from any organization or government, and most of them didn't seem to have any malicious intent. She began to question the degree to which these people were a threat. She said she carried with her a great deal of guilt about completing these missions, but it was her duty to protect her country, and while she tried to convince herself she was doing that, her gut feeling told her something wasn't right. She also knew it would be difficult to leave her job. How could she resign considering the amount she knew? Stepping away would mean risking her life. Although she was confident in her ability to disappear, she felt compelled to stay in the position a while longer. She kept telling herself she would leave when the time was right, but that time never came. She had been in the job for two years before being assigned to kill me. 
During those two years, she told me she had a recurring dream. She said it started the night after completing her first mission for the corporation. She struggled to sleep that night as she couldn't help but think that the person she had just killed hadn't deserved to die. When she finally fell asleep, she had a dream she said was unlike any dream she ever had before. It was far more vivid and felt just like waking life. The only difference was that in the dream, she was someone else. It was the only time she had ever had a dream from another person's point of view. The dream, though odd, became a common recurrence over the next two years until it came into real focus when she listened to my podcast as part of her preparation for a mission to kill me. When she heard me tell about my dream in the hospital, she was taken aback as I described exactly the events in her dream, only from David's perspective instead of Catherine's. She felt like suddenly all the pieces in her life had fallen into place. She realized that the path she was on was meant to lead her to me, and that it was the right path despite everything she had done along the way. After she heard me talk about our shared dream in the last episode, Adrian began to take the message I was sharing more seriously. She told me she started practicing the fire and water rituals herself. I told her she might be the person who Edgar said I would meet and help with the rituals. Adrian said that whether or not that's the case, she would still like me to help her practice them. We also spent some time on our drive talking about our past lives. Adrian's current life seems to be following a similar trajectory as Catherine's. In both lives, she thought she was working for the good guys, only to find out she was working for the other side. I could relate so much to what I felt as Catherine in the dream, she said. It was so real to me. I feel the same way about what I have done, and I have to do something about it. I want to help you in any way I can, I said, like David did for Catherine. I just hope our story has a happier ending. After the long drive, we met someone who took my photo and made me a new driver's license and passport. Adrian gave me a bag she had packed for me, along with an airline ticket and an address on a slip of paper. She told me to walk a couple miles into the city and then take a taxi to the airport. Once I arrived at my destination, I was to take another taxi to the middle of the city and then walk a few miles away to the address on the paper. There I would meet a contact of Adrian's who would take me to the safe house. Adrian said she would join me within a few days. Before we parted ways, I sat with Adrian in the SUV for a few minutes. I knew the risk she was taking in infiltrating her organization, and I had to say something. Thank you for everything you're doing, I said, but I'm worried. I don't want this to end up like what happened with David and Catherine. Don't worry, she said. I know how to handle myself. She then leaned across the seat and kissed me. See you soon, she said. I followed her instructions and arrived the next morning at the address on the slip of paper. It wasn't in the best part of the city and the building looked abandoned from the outside. I knocked on the door and a guy who looked like G.I. Joe opened it. Who are you? He asked sternly. I'm Adam. Adrian sent me, I said, feeling intimidated. Then his face lit up with a smile and he said, Oh, right. Come on in. He introduced himself as Peter, and despite his gruff appearance, he was a really nice guy. The inside of the building looked a lot better than the outside, as Peter had carved out a small but comfortable apartment for himself. He offered me some of the eggs he had made for breakfast, and we talked a little bit over our meal. Adrian told me something about you both having the same dreams, he said. Yeah, it's hard to believe, I know. There's a lot happening right now that is hard to believe, I said. 
Believable or not, he responded, if Adrian needs something, I'm happy to help. Peter said he worked for a government agency in his home country that frequently collaborated with U.S. intelligence. He said he had worked with Adrian on multiple missions when she was with the CIA. Adrian's great, he said, but she has her own way of doing things. I guess you could say she's kind of a lone wolf. He described some of the times they had worked together. He said it was frustrating when she broke mission protocol, and maybe even more frustrating that nine times out of ten, she was right to have done it that way. Unfortunately, her superiors didn't find it so amusing and reassigned her to work deep cover operations. Peter told me he lost contact with her after that. When she called yesterday, he said, I was thrilled to hear from her. It's been a few years. After breakfast, Peter drove me to the safe house and gave me the keys. I thanked him for his help before going inside and settling in. For obvious reasons, I am not disclosing to you any details about where the safe house is located, but the place is pretty nice, and when I arrived, it was already stocked with food and other supplies. Other than that, it felt empty. Just two days prior, I was going on a relaxing trail run at home, and now I was holed up alone in a safe house in a foreign country. Adrian couldn't get there soon enough. The house had no computer or internet access. I was only connected to the rest of the world through cable TV. Every day I hoped would be the day Adrian would walk through the door. It was five days later when Adrian arrived. She tossed a two-inch thick manila folder on the coffee table and sat down on the couch. We've got a lot to talk about, she said. She found out that while the corporation is not affiliated with any government, it frequently directs many of the world's governments to carry out its orders. It seems that the corporation is at the top of the hierarchy of world powers, and the board that runs the organization is comprised of some of the wealthiest people in the world. The ultimate goal, it seems, is to continue to build their wealth and power by manipulating world governments to fulfill their wishes. Adrian found documents that show bank transfers of billions of dollars, payments to government entities for fulfilling the organization's bidding. The branch that Adrian worked for was set up to prevent anyone from using advanced technologies to disrupt the power structure. Any paranormal threats identified by her unit had to be taken out. They saw the same threat in my podcast as my messages and communications with Edgar undermined some of the programs the corporation had designed to strengthen their power over the world's population. Adrian found top-secret files that described the corporation's methods for exerting their control. These include things like water fluoridation and sunlight propaganda, the same issues I have already discussed on this podcast. One report states explicitly that water fluoridation has been selectively implemented in certain parts of the world to prevent societies, and I quote, from gaining too much freedom and independence. The corporation seems to be well-versed on the most effective methods for creating a population of blind followers. Adrian also found documentation of instances where the corporation influenced the outcome of world events in order to create war and unrest around the world. These documents outlined various tactics, including providing funding and weapons to organizations and countries throughout the world, leaking secret government or military intel, and strong-arming various media outlets to sway public opinion. The briefings of these missions refer to a 100-point scale the corporation uses to measure the stability of any given population. The closer the number is to 100, the more stable the country or region, 
while a number closer to zero indicates instability. The documents show that they intentionally try to keep this number around 50 as a means of facilitating control over the population. Either too much stability or too much unrest are both factors that may cause a population to be less passive and less willing to do what they are told. There were some instances where they did something good for humanity to bring a number below 50 back up, but the vast majority of their missions have been to destabilize the world and get the number down. This suggests that humanity's natural trajectory has been toward improvement, but the corporation has been doing everything in their power to prevent that from happening. Adrian was unable to find anything that directly mentioned destroying human consciousness, however. It appears that the intention of these programs is simply to keep the population under the corporation's control. They seem to be ignorant of the true effects of their actions and only have a surface-level perspective concerned with nothing but gaining more wealth and power. The files perfectly outline the corporation's strategies and tactics for manipulating the world to their advantage. However, we don't have any documentation that mentions specific individuals by name, either within the corporation or outside collaborators. Every member of the board of directors is listed as anonymous. While we have documentation of payment transfers, none of these include any names or account numbers. It's clear that the corporation went out of their way to make it difficult to tie any individuals to their actions. Without names, it will be challenging to prove anything. Adrian said we needed to get the names if we were going to be able to take the corporation down. Adrian also unpacked a laptop and microphone and told me I need to keep releasing the podcast. This information needs to be shared with the world, she said. Adrian is here with me now. I am blowing her cover as I release this, but ultimately we hope that this blows the cover off the corporation. Obviously things have changed in how this podcast will unfold moving forward. Adrian and I will remain at the safe house until the remainder of the rituals are released. We also now have a new mission to do what we can to expose and bring down the corporation. That won't be an easy task, but we can all do our part through practicing the rituals to take back some of the power they have stolen from us. By practicing the rituals, we will be strengthening our own consciousness and restoring the power within ourselves. That's all for now. I'll be back when Edgar writes another letter. Talk to you soon.